Let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 27. We'll be looking at the entire chapter this morning. Genesis chapter 27. And before we get there, uh, let me pray once more. Dear Father, as we have gathered together to worship your great name, your worthy name, we pray that you would receive glory and honor, uh, that our praise would be from the heart. And we pray that you would minister to us, that you would nourish us now by your word. We, we stand on the hope and the truth, this foundation that your word, as it goes out, will not return void to you. Despite my weaknesses as a preacher and our weaknesses as hearers, we trust that you will work. Give us ears to hear. Give us faith to believe everything that you have for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Over half a century ago, Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse speculated what it would look like if Satan took over a city. What do you think it would look like if Satan took over a city? Well, it's speculation, of course, but here's what he says. All of the bars would be closed, pornography banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. Morality alone, if it is not grounded in the finished work of Christ and the justification that he gives by faith alone in his name, is deceptive. Morality alone without this grounding is not only de- deceptive, though, it's damning. Things that look ideal aren't always what they see. So you see it on a smile in someone's face who is really hiding despair. Or you hear it when someone says, I'm doing well in response to your greeting. Perhaps you read about it in a Christmas card, a Christmas letter where a family is giving all the happy updates on how wonderful everything is. Not everything is as it seems. Well, if Isaac had written a family Christmas letter, there would have to be a lot that he would leave out, at least if he wanted to keep up appearances. He and his wife played favorites, of course. He favored Esau and Rebekah favored Jacob. They were constantly fighting too, but Jacob and Esau were not fighting like regular children, perhaps, but they really began to hate one another. If we want to find a dysfunctional family in the Bible, we need to look no further than this. This is full of dysfunction. And yet, and yet, upon this family rests the blessing of God. Isn't that amazing? If I wrote a book on the family that God uses for His glory, it would not be this family. We would want a husband who always served his wife well and his children well and protected and nourished them we would want a wife and mother who supported his leadership and pointed her children to faith in the lord we would want children who obeyed their parents and cared for one another but no what we find in our story this morning is a desperately broken dysfunctional family who is nonetheless blessed by god now one reason for this is that because Uh, Broken families are all there really are, right? 
But another reason is because in the midst of all of this ugliness and dysfunction, the beauty of God's majesty and sovereignty and grace shines through. He delights in working something from nothing. In working success through even sinful humans. In working His good plan through ungodly people who make ungodly decisions. And this puts God's grace on display for the world to see. If God only worked through the brightest and best, those who have it together, then surely they would get the glory. They would deserve His love, His favor, His blessing. But if God works His plan and puts His blessing on broken down humble sinners, well then we all have hope. For His grace is greater than all of our sins. So take a look with me in our story for this morning and see how God's sovereignty, God's grace is put on display through blessing this family. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out into the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me a delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food, that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats, so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man. And I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will fill me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be upon me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food, such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands, and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread, which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went into his father and said, My father! And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that... Your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac his father who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. 
So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me, and I ate it all before you came? And I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered him and said to him, Behold, Away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older brother, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? May God bless the reading of his holy word. Now I've made the point before, and I'll make it again, that Christianity is not primarily primarily about morality. It is about the grace of God in Jesus Christ and the story of redemption by which God has saved sinners. And we shouldn't read Scripture primarily as an instruction manual for good morals or good living. It is that. It does show us what pleases God, 
But first and foremost, the Bible is God's holy word to us, Him speaking to us about who He is, what He has required of us, how we have failed to do what He has required of us, what He has done to save us, and how He is making all things new. Now I say all that again because I'm about to start out talking about the moral lessons that we learn from this passage. I don't want us to miss the main importance of this passage regarding God's glorious grace in carrying forward His plan, sovereignly carrying forward His plan to bless the nations through Abraham's offspring. But I also don't want us to miss these great relational lessons that are here for us. From this family's dysfunction, we learn how not to do family life. And really, since they are the covenant family, we, we learn how not to do covenant family life. We learn by their sins, by their mistakes. We learn by contrasts sometimes. So if you're teaching someone something, you might teach them, okay, swing the bat like this. No, don't swing, let, swing it like this. Swing it like this. And so we learn by contrast. So this morning, we're going to see how not to do covenant family life. Three, first, we'll, we'll see three relational lessons that we should learn from this blessed, dysfunctional family. First, we learn that we must seek the will of God rather than our own will. We must seek the will of God rather than our own will. We see in the story that Isaac, in particular, is seeking his own will rather than the Lord's will. Now, from the birth narrative we have, we've previously seen, we become aware that there are two nations within Rebekah and they will be set against one another. And the older, we find, will serve the younger. And it seems at least likely that Isaac is aware of this oracle from God. Would Rebekah really keep that a secret? And Isaac also knows how this oracle has already started coming about. Remember, Esau despised his birthright. He sold his birthright for uh, a bowl of the red stuff because he was hungry. And yet Esau, and yet Isaac hangs on to his favorite son, Esau. He hopes that the blessing might fall upon him rather than Jacob. Perhaps he's going along with the custom of the day in wanting to bless his older son. But he holds out this hope that Esau will be the one who is blessed, that Esau will carry forward the promise that had been given to Abraham. And this, of course, sets up the family for failure from the beginning. Isaac seeking his own will rather than the will of the Lord. And friends, in our own relationships, in the family and in the church, we must seek the will of God rather than our own will. In fact, what we must do is be constantly bringing our will into alignment with the will of the Father. With the will of God. Now by this, I don't mean that there's some secret will that you have to try and find out in order to please God. Many Christians think this way, but it's actually not biblical. There is a secret will, to be sure, but we don't know what that is. We can't find out what God's secret will is for tomorrow until we get to tomorrow and see what happens. We don't have to go looking for signs of God telling us what we ought to do because we already have it in the Word of God. 
What I'm talking about is the revealed will of God as expressed to us in the Bible. God speaks to us in His Word. He gives us clear prohibitions and clear commands. He tells us what pleases Him and what doesn't. And we must bring our own will into conformity with His will. And when we do this, it will produce peace in our families, in our churches too. Now, we see the opposite in our story. That Isaac, seeking out his own will rather than the Lord's, brings bitterness and envy and destruction to the family. Now, I don't think that I'm saying life, family life will be perfect if you do these things, or church life will be perfect if you do these things. By no, no means. There will still be conflict, challenges, we'll still sin against each other, we'll still get angry with one another. Perhaps in serious ways we will sin against one another. But the book of Proverbs, for instance, is in the Bible for a reason. Right? The wisdom of God, which teaches us, if you follow the Lord's commands, generally here's the way things will work out. You will reap good fruit from following God's good wisdom. So consider this for your families. Consider this in your relationship to your husband or to your wife or to your sons or daughters or to your parents. Have you been seeking your own will within your family? Consider the discord that you've had in your relationships. Can you trace that discord back to areas you've been seeking your own will rather than the will of the Lord? This is one lesson we learned from this story, but a second lesson is that we learn we must listen to the voice of God rather than to the voice of others. Now, of course, this is related to the previous point. But notice Jacob. Who does Jacob obey in this story at all costs? He obeys his mother. In fact, it's Rebecca that insists he obey. Did you notice the refrain uh, of what Rebecca said throughout the story? Three times in the story, verses 8, verses 13... In verse 43, she says to Jacob, Obey my voice. Obey these commands that I am giving to you. And he does exactly as she says. The only real hesitancy he has in following along with her plan is that he might get caught. And then that he would get a curse instead of a blessing. So instead, Jacob ought to have been listening to the voice of God rather than to the voice of God. Of his mother. He ought to have rejected his mother's advice, which was contrary to godliness. He knew better. Now, we should be careful here, right? I don't want kids to hear me saying, it's okay to disobey your parents. You ought to do what they tell you. Generally, they are looking out for your good. Even when they make mistakes, they're looking out for your good. They want to you to do well in life. They want you to be healthy and godly. But, right? But. But if they tell you to do something contrary to the word of God, if they tell you to steal, if they tell you to lie, if they tell you to deceive, if they tell you to worship another God, then you are to listen to the voice of God as it is written down in Scripture, and not to their voice. When Jacob listened to his mother's voice instead of God's voice, he plunged himself and his family into a world of trouble. This is what happens 
when we listen to other voices contrary to the voice of God. So fathers and mothers, be careful how you instruct your little ones. Do not lead them into sin. They learn from you. They learn how to follow God's law or they learn how to skirt God's law. And they will follow in your footsteps. Teach them to obey the voice of God by giving them godly examples and godly instructions. Teach them to revere God more than they revere you. To love Him. To rejoice in Him. To prize Him. To trust Him more than yourself even. Third, we learn another lesson from this story. We learn from this family that we must aim to love people rather than to use people. We must aim to love people rather than to use them. Now, Rebecca and Jacob, they have spiritual things in mind, okay? This is better than Esau. Esau despised his birthright for a bowl of food. He, he did not have his mind set on heavenly spiritual things. But Jacob and Rebecca, their thoughts are in line with the oracle that Rebekah heard about the older serving the young, younger. And they're in line with the fact that Jacob had obtained the birthright from Esau. The prize, they prized the things that they should be prizing. But they go about getting them in the wrong ways. They use Isaac as a tool to get the blessing they desire. And whenever you use someone, even if you're using them to obtain the right sorts of things, you know that you have gone very, very wrong. Rebecca and Jacob ought to have believed the promise. Perhaps there was no, they, they could see no way that Jacob was going to receive the blessing as had been promised. And yet they ought to have believed the promise and not tried to gain it by their own ungodly means. As a result of their deception, their family was plunged into anger and bitterness and regret. Now, I know that these are very simple lessons about our relationships with one another, but often it's the simple things we tend to forget. We tend to take for granted. So take a moment before we continue and apply these lessons to your own life, to your own family life, to your own relationships. In what ways do you have the tendency to use people rather than to love them? How do you tend to use people in your family? How might you tend to use people in your church? in your neighborhood, or in other relationships. Not to hijack your thought processes, but we talked about evangelism this morning in our seminar before our service. And you know what? We Christians can sometimes do this with evangelism. Instead of actually loving the people we are seeking, instead of actually loving the people we are talking to, we use them to bolster our own feelings of righteousness. We can say to our accountability partner, we witnessed this week, but we cannot say that we loved. Or, of course, we do this whenever we judge others in self-righteousness. We push others down that we might get a leg up and obtain the blessing of God for all our good efforts. And parents, if we're not careful, we can manipulate our children with guilt and disappointment, using them to get them to do what we want. So... Maybe you can see one of the points I'm trying to make by now. Isaac and his family were miserably guilty of selfishness and deception in using one another, and so often we are too. What we see in this dysfunctional family really is a reflection of ourselves, of our own sin, of our own broken relationships and dysfunction. 
the ways that we have rejected the Word of God and the voice of God and the will of God and the way that we tend to use one another rather than to love one another. How we fail the great commandment and the second which is like it. To love God with all of our hearts, with all that we are, and to love our neighbor as ourself. Their sin is rampant in this passage. And if we were to take snapshots throughout our lives, our sin would be rampant as well. Each person in this story is motivated by their own selfish desires rather than the desires of God, by their own desires instead of faith in the God of the promise. And by their sin, they are threatening the promise of God. They are threatening the purpose and plan of God. Would this plan to to bless Abraham and his offspring, would this plan to bless the nations through the seed of Abraham come to ruin because of this dysfunctional family? Yes, it would. The Lord's plan would continue. The Lord's plan would continue because God is sovereign in the fulfillment of His purposes. And that's the main theme of this text as we have looked at previously as well. God is sovereign in the fulfillment of His promises. Here we see the wickedness of God's people and the triumph of His sovereignty. So our theme is that God is sovereign in the fulfillment of His purposes. Now take note of these three truths regarding this theme. You didn't know you were getting a six-point sermon today, did you? God is sovereign in the fulfillment of His promises, even to the point that He overcomes this family's dysfunction, this family's sin, in order to move forward His plan of redemption. First notice this truth, that God sometimes uses sinful people acting in sinful ways to accomplish His purposes. God sometimes uses sinful people acting in sinful ways to accomplish His purposes. Do you see that in the story? God uses these sinful people and the sinful acts of deception on the parts of Rebekah and Jacob to fulfill His purposes. I think it's right to speculate if they had just been faithful, if they had been obedient, trusting in God to carry forth His plan, not taking things into their own hands, that God would have seen the blessing placed upon Jacob. But this is how it happened. This is how God fulfilled His promise that the older would serve the younger. And this is a great comfort to us to know that nothing can thwart the plans and purposes of our sovereign God. Not our mistakes, not our sins, not our deceptions, not our ungodliness. Nothing in all the world can stop God from doing what God wants to do. And can't we see this in other places in Scripture? Wasn't Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers only to be raised up in power in Egypt that he might rescue God's people in a time of famine? But what Joseph's brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. And of course, we see this in the best example of all in the person and work of Christ Himself, the Son of God. Right? He looked defeated. He looked doomed. Satan and all his demons thought God had been stopped when sinful men nailed Jesus to the cross. It was through a deception It was through a betrayal that Jesus was handed over to the Jews. 
And it was through sinful people acting in sinful ways that God fulfilled his plans to redeem a people for himself. Or you can go even deeper than that. It was our sin that nailed him there until our salvation was accomplished. For us who have turned away from our sins and trusted in Christ, who boast only in Christ and His cross, who treasure Him above all things, what a wonder this is that God sometimes works through sinful people acting in sinful ways to accomplish His purposes. But second, this does not, however, make God the author of sin. That God uses sinful people to accomplish His purposes doesn't make Him the author of evil. He can ordain something that comes to pass without affirming its goodness. He can ordain, for example, the crucifixion of the Son of God without affirming the actions of those who crucified Him. He uses secondary means. He uses secondary means to fulfill His purposes and thereby He is not the author of sin. Now we saw a few months ago From the book of James, right? That it is contrary to God's nature to sin or to tempt anyone to sin. Rather, each one is tempted when we are carried away by our own sinful desires. And then desire gives birth to sin and sin results in death. You see, the Bible has no problem saying that God is absolutely sovereign over all things. And that mankind is absolutely responsible for all his actions. And we shouldn't have a problem with that either. And this leads to our third truth about God's sovereignty in fulfilling His plan. God's use of sinful people doesn't excuse the sinfulness of man. Rebecca and Jacob were wrong to obtain the blessing by deception. And they reaped the consequences of those sins. Jacob is sent out in exile. For years and years out of the promised land, estranged from his brother, separated from his family, deceived by his own family members. Joseph's brothers were wrong to sell their brother into slavery. Judas Iscariot was wrong for betraying our Lord. And those who crucified our Lord are guilty of their sin. Do not ever think that the ends justify the means. Do not ever think that God making beautiful things out of our sinful messes justifies our sin. Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau are all guilty before the Lord, and you are too. None of them deserved the blessing of God, and we don't either. But God gave it to Jacob anyway, and He gives it to those who don't deserve it today. Consider Jacob's blessing. He gained it by deception. He used people to obtain his blessing. He gained material blessings from the land. He gained strength over the nations and over his brothers. He became the arbiter of blessings and curses. Did you see that? Whoever blessed him would be blessed. Whoever cursed him would be cursed, just as his father Abraham was. But friends, Jesus has a superior blessing than Jacob. And he obtained it by a superior means. Jesus gained his blessing by virtue of being the firstborn of all creation. He used his blessing, not for his own sake, but for the sake of others. 
He is the ruler over all the nations, and yet he became subject to them in his incarnation. And he doesn't exert power over his brothers, but rather lays down his life that more might become sons and daughters and members of the family of God. And Jesus' blessing wasn't simply temporal. Rather, he became the arbiter of eternal blessings and curses. Whoever blesses Jesus, coming to him in faith, will receive the eternal blessing of life with God in heaven. But whoever curses him by rejecting his name will receive the eternal curse of death in hell. Friends, we obtain this blessing by being connected in faith to Christ. By being connected to the one on whom the Father's blessing rests. By bowing at the feet of Jesus, God's blessing rolls off onto us. Or I should say, flows through Jesus into us. But what do we gain by this blessing of Christ? What do we gain by Jesus obtaining the blessing of God by his life of perfect obedience, by his sacrificial death on the cross, and by his resurrection? At times, some of us might prefer the blessing of Jacob. Wouldn't that be great? Material blessing? Power over others? Nobody can curse you and get away with it? But the blessing Jesus gives is superior. For what do we receive in Christ but all the spiritual blessings in this life and in the life to come? We gain peace with God Almighty, our Creator and Judge. We gain the forgiveness of our sins. All the material wealth in the world means nothing if you are still in your sins. We gain everlasting life with God. We gain material blessings in the life to come. We gain ruling the nations with Christ, our brother in the heavenly realms. And we gain an inheritance which far outweighs anything in this world. And all of this blessing comes not at your own expense, but at the expense of Christ. At the expense of his life for you. Now, do you see where this leaves us in regards to the blessings of this world? Why would we pursue the blessings of this world when we have the blessings of God Because of Christ. Why would we settle for anything this world has to offer us when we have Christ and all his blessings? Why would we live for the things of this world when Jesus died and rose again to give us the things of another superior world? We have a superior blessing in Christ. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we Thank you for your word. We thank you for this example of your sovereignty overruling our sinfulness. We thank you for Christ, the true and better Jacob who gained his blessing by laying his life down for sinners and taking it up again. Father, I pray that you would take your word now and apply it to our hearts by your spirit that you would cause us to consider this negative example of family life in your word, that we would reflect upon our own sin and spend a moment confessing it to you today, that we would confess it to our family members if we find we've been guilty. We pray that you would cause us to see the depths 
of our own dysfunction and sin, that we might see the glory of your grace in overcoming our sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.